if you would take your Bible and turn in it to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Galatians 5, as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Against such there is no law. Go and do them all you want. There is no limit to how much you are free to walk in the Spirit and to love your neighbor as yourself. And today we want to see that love in a particular application that God gives us in 1 John 4. As Pastor Kaiser brought the communion meditation and I listened to his six points, I realized every one of those six points is represented in the Word today, in the sermon. Uh, They will all be intermixed and mingled in there. So uh, look for those. See if you can see them and hear them. And notice that uh, we did not prepare these messages together, but it's the way that God's Word always works uniformly because it is the Word of the Lord. So give your attention to the reading of it. 1 John 4, beginning at verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son, the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love has been perfected in us. Father of love, we bow in our minds and our hearts to humble submission to Your Word, I would ask for us this morning that all unbiblical definitions of love which crowd into our mind and threaten to divert our actions and distract our hearts and destroy the joy of obedience to Your Word would be banished far from us. And instead, by the renewing grace of Your Spirit, we would come to know the truth about love. That You would do this for us because You love us. We know this, for we see Jesus on the cross taking our sin, that man of sorrow, that we might know no sorrow, but only joy forever in Your presence. We pray that joy and that love upon us this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. I did um, talk to Pastor Kaiser about this and put together a little yellow sheet of paper which has Covenant Kids sermon notes. So if anybody did not get that but would like their children to be able to do that, it just follows right along with the sermon uh, but gives some places where the kids are to pay particular attention and uh, take notes. So those are on the back table if you want one but did not get it. Feel free to go and do so. 
someone gave this warning. Do not love anyone. Do not let your happiness depend upon something that you may lose. Do not put your goods into a leaky vessel. Be careful in love. It may lead you to suffering. I bet some of you here know that hurt, either from a a parent or a child that you have loved, maybe even a, a favorite cat or dog, something, someone that you have loved so much and you have been hurt. You know that broken heart. You know that to love anything is to be vulnerable, right? So, should we agree with this person and just never love then? C.S. Lewis commenting on that warning said, this, is, this solution, this idea of just never love is simply stoic apathy. We follow one who wept over Jerusalem and at the grave of Lazarus. And even Christ Himself came at the last to say to God, Why have you forsaken me? There is no escape. There is no safe investment. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But, in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. Oh, it will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. Today we want to take our first bite into the fruit of the Spirit, tasting some of the fruit of love. But I warn you on the front end, if you eat of this fruit, as it enters into your deepest parts, it will change you you will become like Jesus. And we killed Him. So know that on the front end. But Lewis is correct. Either you eat of this fruit and become like Jesus, one who risks a broken heart, or you will become cold and bitter and unloving. My hope for us that we would begin today to experience more of the wonders of God's love. And we're going to consider to get there four things. The definition of biblical love, the opposite of it, the counterfeit, and the cultivation. We're going to define it, look at its opposite, that we might deny our flesh that, warn us about the counterfeits, and then seek to cultivate it. Before we begin down those four points, though, let me make four preliminary observations just to get us started. First, I want to assure you that in spite of what some of you may think, I did not simply pick this topic because I knew 
so much of your sin nature and wanted to expose it to public ridicule. I picked this topic because this is something I know that I need. This is an area where I want to grow. The Spirit, I pray, is teaching me even as we are learning together. Our flesh is being crucified. And then second, can we admit that this is hard? <laughs> Somebody this week said, told me that, that in, the, in, in some of the sermons I've, I've stopped and I've said something along the lines of, I don't know what they're talking about, but I'm sure you do, can I love on you? The problem is that I've never stopped to let you say, no, we're tired of that. My flesh doesn't want to be loved on anymore. It's hard, isn't it? Then third, let me just remind myself as well as you that I have many failures in these areas. I'm sure Helen would not do this to me, at least I hope she won't, but she could easily tell you of my lack of love. And then fourth, I cannot cover everything about love in one sermon. It will necessarily be an overview and also taking one or two aspects of it and trying to dive deeply in with those. And my hope is that the arrow, (laughs) the sword of God's Word, would cut deeply into our hearts and, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, Paulus sowed, the seed. uh, I sowed the seed, Apollos watered the seed, but God gives the increase. May this be a, a breaking of ground, a sowing of a seed of love that by the watering and grace of the Spirit over the next weeks and months, we might all see a, a flowering, a blossoming of the fruit, the tree of the fruit of the Spirit, and a, a bountiful overflow of love coming from us. So with all of those things in mind, in order that such things might be true of us, let's begin by noticing that as followers of Jesus Christ, we must embrace a biblical definition of love. And because love is a topic where there's so many false definitions, just for the sake of discussion, let's call the biblical love, let's call it gospel love. Because this passage points to the gospel, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ as our definition of love. So we must embrace a biblical definition of love, which we will call gospel love. Now, in order to explain that, let's do a little imagination. Let's suppose that today is Helen's and my anniversary. It's not. I have, I'm sure, in times forgotten our anniversary, but I did not forget it and making up for it now. It's in August, August 8th, 6th. Uh, (laughs) of 88. But let's suppose that today is our wedding anniversary and let's suppose that here's one option for love. This is based on the idea that love is a feeling. Love is, is primarily the feeling that I get when I am around the beloved. It's the popular definition of love. So let me... Let me describe it, and I will use a little bit of an exaggeration so that we might see more clearly the distinctions. But here's option one. I might announce to you from the pulpit how much I love my wife. And then at home I could tell her that I love her, and I could tell the kids that I love her, and I could smile a great deal and just talk about how good and I feel when I'm around her and how happy I am. But what if I did nothing else? What if I 
gave her no card or present. I did not take her out to dinner. I did not offer in any way to take care of the kids. In fact, I do absolutely nothing for my wife other than talk a good talk. Now, if you were my counselor, you should take me, one of the places you should take me might be to 1 John chapter 3. Since we're in 1 John, just look, it's on my Bible, the same page, back at verse 18 of 1 John 3. Here John is teaching about this very problem. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. So if you love me, (laughs) you would confront my shallow emotion, which is masquerading as love. You might describe my problem this way. You might say to me, Glenn... You may be delighting in Helen, but you are doing nothing to delight her. You are delighting in her. You're, you're, you're happy with her because she makes you feel good. But you are not doing anything for her. You're not sacrificing in any way. You are happy enough that she makes you feel good, but you seem little interested in making her happy. And so you might say this, Glenn, here's what you are communicating. You're communicating to your wife this. Helen, there, was, there is nothing I would rather do than have you make me happy. Right? There's nothing I'd rather do than have you make me happy. That's the popular definition of love. Most, if you listen to the radio or watch a movie or television, and they use the word love, that's what people mean. That's what many young couples when they, young teens, when they're starting to get together, whether courting or dating, that's what they mean when they say, I love you. I love the way you make me feel. But that's not what God means in 1 John 4. So we need to reject that definition. Let me give you a second option. In reaction to that, some people have said, well, love is not a feeling. That's shallow. Love instead is an action. Love is an action without regard to feelings. So what if I were to do this instead? Today's our anniversary, but I say nothing about it from the pulpit. I say nothing about it when we get home. I say nothing to Helen at all. Suppose, in fact, I'm in a little bit of a sour mood. But I arrange for babysitting. I go to uh, Borshines and buy a, a diamond with all the money I can afford, $12.13. Now, we'll get a diamond... Maybe I can get a picture of one. <laughs> I buy Helen a pic- picture of a diamond. I buy flowers. I take her out to dinner. And yet the whole night I never smile. I never say, oh, my wife, I love you. What would Helen say about that anniversary dinner and that date? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> she wouldn't say anything good, would she? Why? I've, I've done some actions, but I have not yet loved her with a gospel love. Let me show you a place in the Bible, 1 Corinthians, if you turn back there. Backward in your Bible from 1 John. Probably some of you know that the most famous chapter in the Bible on love is in 1 Corinthians 13. It was even read, I think, at the Fugate wedding last week for those of you who attended. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul is speaking of this specific problem. That there is apparently a way to do a lot of stuff and yet still not have love. Look in verses 1 to 3. Though I speak, 1 Corinthians 13, 1-3, Though I speak 
with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or clanging cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. You see that illustration of my relationship with Helen? Though I spend all my money to buy a diamond ring, but have not love, it would profit me nothing. I want you not to miss there Paul's shocking indictment of our expectation. He says love is not equal to sacrificial action. It is not equal to sacrificial action. Now listen, it is true that love is more than mere warm feelings. And it is also true that love sacrifices even in the absence of feelings. So don't think that those things are not true. Love is more than mere feelings and love does sacrifice even in the absence of feelings. But listen, it is not accurate to say that love is simply what you do without regard to feelings. That's not love. And so, in my illustration, though I did some outward acts toward Helen, I have not loved. I have, may have done some things that's supposed to make her happy, but I have, listen, I have neither enjoyed her nor enjoyed being with her. Men, that's what she means when she says, you don't love me. Okay, that's what she's talking about in case you hadn't figured it out by now. Let's make it pretty clear, okay? I have not enjoyed her or being with her. So, in the first option, if my body language and what I'm saying communicates this, Helen, there is nothing I would rather do than have you delight me. Then the second illustration says this, Helen, there is much I would rather do than delight you but I will do my duty. And this duty without delight is not gospel love. Duty without delight is not gospel love. So what is gospel love? Let's look at the third option. And I would like to suggest that the Bible teaches that gospel love is more than feelings. It is action also, but it includes feelings. It is more than feelings. It is also action, but it includes feelings. Gospel love toward Helen is love which not only delights to be with her, but delights to delight her. And the only way to enjoy and love your wife on your anniversary is both to enjoy being with her and to enjoy making her happy. John Piper in his book gives an illustration that maybe the kids will be able to understand a little bit better. He says this, he says, suppose I go to one of my boys and I tell them, son, be nice to your brother and help him clean up his room and try to make him happy, (laughs) not miserable. But then suppose the brother goes and helps him clean up the room, but he pouts. Everybody's shaking their head. You know this one. We've seen this before, right? He pouts. He exudes unhappiness. If that's what he does, there is no virtue in his effort. Why not? Because he has not chosen by faith, to make his happiness his brother's happiness. 
It has to be both. It's not only doing the action, but it is choosing by faith to be delighted in the action. So if in the, back to the marriage analogy, to the wedding anniversary analogy. Let's suppose back the first option, in my body language and in everything I'm doing, in the first option, I'm saying this to Helen. Helen, there is nothing I would rather do than have you delight me. In the second option, I'm saying, Helen, there is much I would rather do than delight you, but I will do my duty. The third option, biblical gospel love says this, Helen, there is nothing I would rather do than delight you. Your joy is my joy. My happiness is tied up with your happiness. And I think if you, we continue on in 1 Corinthians 13, it will, that definition of love will help explain verses 4 to 8. Notice what Paul says about this kind of love. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. I'm in 1 Corinthians 13.4. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It thinks no evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity, but it rejoices in the truth. And then this amazing sentence. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. How is such love possible? It is not possible if you define love by the warm feeling I get from being around you. If that's your only definition of love, then it will fail when the warm feeling is gone, right? Gospel love never fails. Why? Because it delights. It finds its warm feeling, its joy, its delight, listen, in creating joy in others. That's what makes the difference in gospel love. So as long as there are others who need to be encouraged, as long as there are people who need to be lifted up, as long as there are those who need to be strengthened, as long as there are people who need to be helped, need to be forgiven, need to be protected, need to be trusted, gospel love flourishes because it delights in meeting that need with the truth and with biblical love. As followers of Christ, we must embrace this biblical definition of love. And here it is, gospel love both delights in another and delights in delighting them. Gospel love both delights in another and delights in delighting them. Now, with that definition, in order that the Spirit might produce this love in us, as remember from you probably remember from Galatians 5, that part about the fruit of the Spirit. Remember above and below the text, it said something about what? You might remember what evil word it used? Remember that word? Mortification. Does anybody remember that beside me? Mortification. Dying to the flesh. So second, if this kind of love is going to be produced in us, then we must deny ourselves the opposite of love. Now, I think many of us might expect, right off the bat, if I said, what's the opposite of love? We might say it's hatred or anger. And I guess if you define love in a certain way, it might be. But I don't think if we do a biblical definition of love, we will get that. And here's why. The Bible teaches that God is love. And yet He hates those who continue in sin. Jesus is love incarnate, and yet He was angry with the hardness of the Pharisee's heart. So what is the opposite of love? I would suggest to you the opposite of love is 
indifference. It's not caring. Does anybody know? If you think about how do we know what love is, is the answer to that question not the cross? Isn't that how we know what love is? It says that in the text. This is love. Not that we love God, but He loved us and gave His Son an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So the very definition of love hinges and depends on the cross. And what is the word? It starts with a P that we use for Jesus going to the cross. Does anybody remember? The passion, right? If you look up passion in your thesaurus and you look under antonyms, the opposite of passion is indifference. It's not caring. Jesus' love cares all the way to the cross. Nothing, listen, nothing could be further from the character of your Lord and Savior than a lack of concern for you, than a lack of compassion, than apathy or indifference. Look at the cross. Jesus went all the way there to show you and seal to you His love. Look at the cross. This is not an ordinary man hanging on this instrument of torture. At the cross, God, yes, it's God in the human flesh, but He's no less God for taking on humanity. If if Jesus had had one drop of indifference to your needs, He would not have stayed on the cross. Surely you know that it is not the nails that kept Him there. With a word, a whole legion of angels would have come and He would have been returned to His glorious place where all of creation sings His praise. I love Michael Card's song. It's called Why? And it has these words in it. Why did it have to be a heavy cross He was made to bear? And why did they nail His feet and hands? His love would have held Him there. It wasn't the nails that held Him there. He went to the cross because His love is the exact opposite of indifference. He never says, yeah, right, whatever. It's always compassion. So men, think about this. How often have we not been indifferent to the cares and concerns of our wives when God has told us to love them as Christ loved the church? Parents, how often have we not lacked concern for what concerns our kids when their tender hearts and consciences could have been driven should have driven us to passionate service. Christian citizens, have we not fallen far from gospel love when our country so desperately needs a compassionate and costly love from her godly women and men? Oh, Christian evangelist, you who would desire to share the gospel, have we not often been indifferent to the hurts and needs of the very friends we long to see saved. The opposite of the love of Christ in the Gospel is indifference because Gospel love is costly. It carries with it a cross 
it requires the crucifixion of the old nature with its selfish passions and desires. It denies the lust of the flesh which is begging you to be indifferent. And it insists that you stay all the way to costly compassion. The love of Christ is not indifferent. So, we've seen the definition of love and, and second, the opposite of it. Third, as we seek to have the Spirit produce in us true biblical love, let us be cautious of the counterfeit. Something that looks like biblical love, but in fact is not and will distract us from the true thing. C.S. Lewis in one of his books calls this counterfeit need love in contradistinction to gospel love. If gospel love is both delighting in and delighting to delight another, it's hard to say, if gospel love is both delighting in another person and delighting to delight them, need love as opposed to that is delighting in delighting myself. Now, realize that both of them have some delight. Both of them can feel good. Both can excite us. But need love dies when the need is met. Gospel love never fails. 1 Corinthians 8, uh, 13.8 Gospel love never fails. Why? Because the need for love never ends. Let me give you an illustration. Suppose I have been out cutting the grass on a hot August day and Helen comes to me with a big glass of iced tea and says, would you like some iced tea? And I say, oh, I would love some iced tea. Sweet southern iced tea. And then I chug it down, right David? Chug it down all the way to the bottom. Drink that little grains of sugar that are down there just at the bottom oozing in like grains of sand. So good. And then she says, Boy, you really... (laughs) She says, you really like that. Maybe you want another. No, thanks. What happened? Five seconds ago, you had this passionate love for iced tea and now it's complete indifference. The difference is, or what happened is, we're talking about need love. I felt a passion for tea only as long as I wanted some tea. Now, that's a silly example, I know, but you know what? Let me, let me love on you and take it a little bit closer to home. But, yeah, thank you. Let me take it a little bit closer to home and think about how we define love in our dating or marriage relationships. It works like this, doesn't it? A boy and a girl meet and they fall in love. Now, the culture in which we breathe and and swim, the world and everything around us is telling us that love is that feeling you get when you're around someone else. uh, There was a cartoon strip, uh, this this has been a long time ago, it was in Bloom County, which was an old cartoon in the, I think it was in the 80s that had a penguin and a couple of other strange characters. But one of the characters, Milo Bloom, falls in love with a young girl at his school. And when he comes home and explains it, here's how he says, here's here's how he chooses to explain it. He says, I know I'm in love because she carbonates my hormones. 
Isn't that a good, good description of, of the popular definition of love? Carbonated hormones. You see? Now, so when I say, if you have that definition of love and I say to someone, I love you, what I am really saying is, I love having my needs met. I love having you meet my need to be attractive, my desire to be desirable, my longing to be prized. I love how you delight me. Or, here's a popular one, I love who I am when I am around you. But then what happens when you get married? It's the same thing that happens when your sister leaves the top off the Coke bottle and puts it back in the fridge. What happens three or four days later when you go back to drink it? It's what? It's flat. Why? Because all the carbonation has left. Some of you have been married long enough to know that the carbonation on the hormones is a great and fun and exciting thing, but sometimes it, it does go flat, doesn't it? And then when it goes flat, some people leave their spouses. Others resort to mere duty without joy. Now, here's the hard part. The problem is not the marriage. And here's the harder part. The problem is not your spouse. What's the problem? The problem is you are still longing for carbonated hormones. (laughs) You're longing to have your need love met rather than delighting in loving with gospel love. See, some imagine that what marriage is is the perpetual ongoing experience of carbonated hormones rather than the commitment of gospel love. That's the difference. Let me tell you something. This is hard. And it's not hard. Here it is. I'm going to say it. I know I shouldn't, but I'll say it. It's not hard. It is not hard because your spouse is unlovely. It's not. Why is it hard? It's hard because I am unloving. See the difference? Listen, before you can bear any fruit of gospel love, we must be cleansed of that desire for the counterfeit. And how are we cleansed from it? We're cleansed by grabbing on to a greater love, a more satisfying joy, and that is gospel love. And so that brings us to the final point, actively cultivating this biblical love. That's what I want us to do, is actively cultivate it. And I see five keys here in verses 7-11 to of 1 John 4. Five keys that will teach us how to begin to bear fruit of gospel love. First, in verse 7a, you must know that the source of love is God. 1 John 4, 7a, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. Carbonated hormones come naturally. Gospel love is supernatural. We're talking about something here that is not within us. It does not come bubbling out of us naturally. It is something that God's grace has to work it in and through us. Be crystal clear here. It is not within me to love with a gospel love. To love in a way that is not degraded by selfishness, not defaced by a self-serving heart, not defiled by self-centeredness. That love is not within me. It comes only by the grace of God. Isn't it true? Doesn't that help you understand why people reject the gospel? 
Because if, if you go to people and you say, well, if you just pray this prayer, Jesus will make you happy and your marriage will be better and everything will be good. Well, so wonder they line up for that. But you insist to them that you cannot be happy unless you love others with a self-denying love, a self-denying love that only Jesus can give you because you are too evil in your own heart to love anyone or anything without ruining it with self-serving thoughts and motives. And they will not be so impressed unless the Spirit of God is working in them. And they will admit, they will say, you know, that's right. It's not within me. I need something else. I need a supernatural work. I need the love which is of God. Love is of God. So, so first, notice the source of the love. Then second, the necessity of love. The second part of verse 7 says, Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So he who does not love does not know God. For God is love. Now, the obvious question is, if this love thing is so hard to do, and it requires death to my selfish motives, and it requires a supernatural work of grace, why bother? I mean, why bother? Here's the answer right here. Look. Because if you know God, you can't help but bother. Because God is love. Last year at election time, or two years ago, whenever it was, my kids said, Dad, for whom are we voting? They know me, and they want to be like me. And if you know God, you want to be like God, and you want to be able to love with a supernatural love. So the necessity is caused by God's having loved you, by your knowledge of Him. The more you know Him, the more you desperately want this gospel love in you. Then third... Notice the power for the love. Verse 9. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. Now, since this love that God demands of us is unnatural, where do we get it? Where do we get the love which God commands? And this is where... You, as a believer, must continue to appropriate the gospel every day of your life because you cannot generate it. It's not that you become a Christian and then you're able to work up inside of you some feelings so that you can love your enemies. No. Instead, it's this, that the love comes through Christ that we might live through Him. Look at the last phrase at verse 9 that we might live through Him. That word live includes all of the good works that we might do, especially in this paragraph, seeking to love others. In fact, you could put the word love right in that sentence and get the same truth, although it would be less broad. He has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might love through Him. Do you see it there? I cannot love my enemies who mistreat me even though God commands me to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So what shall I do? Here's the command, and yet it's not within me. What do we do? We see our need for Christ. See, that command begs you to see that you need Jesus. 
You need His life flowing from you. Through faith in His love, He will love them through you. John Piper explains this well in one of his sermons. He writes this, Now there are things we call love which people do who are not born of God. Okay, So there are things that are called love that are not true love. There are loves that spring from sexual desire and natural affections and philanthropic aspirations, but those do not point to the supernatural work of God. They are no signs that you are born of God. So what matters is a love that can only be explained by the supernatural work of God. That is the love that assures you that you are born of God. And it is the love that will cause some people, not all of them, but some, to see and give glory to your Father in heaven. There is nothing, here it is, here's the motive, there is nothing more thrilling than experiencing the love of God so deeply in your life that it spills over into relationships with others. And that's what 1 John is about. Being so deeply transformed by the love of God that we live out the supernatural love of God. It is something that is so deep within us by the work of the Spirit, the new birth, that it flows out in self-sacrificing service which delights to delight others. So the power for love is the life and love of Jesus Christ. Fourth, notice the definition of love. That's in verse 10. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son, the propitiation for our sins. We called it gospel love in this sermon. And that whole thing is based on this verse. This is how we know what love is. God sent His Son to die for our sins. Therefore, biblical love or gospel love is God's delighting in us and delighting to delight us. Why? Because Jesus delighted to save us at the cross, to give us that very thing which we cannot have any other way, but which we so desperately want, the privilege of enjoying the glory of God and of knowing His love. So the cross stands above any cheap imitation. And it boldly announces, here is the one true love which you, which every soul seeks. And if you will abandon all other loves for this one, you will know the glory of the all-surpassing love of Jesus Christ. That love begs you to come and share in the love of the Father. And then finally, the motive for love, that's in verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And notice carefully what it says. It does not simply say to you, you ought to love other people, but it tells you why. It gives you the motive. It is because God has loved you. See, when you consider the the great difficulty of putting off selfishness, putting off these other self-seeking counterfeits of love, when you consider the the harshness of death to self which which must accompany the putting on the love of Christ, simply acknowledging that you ought to do it, getting up every day and saying, I ought to love my wife. That's not going to be enough. You need something more. And what the Bible calls the renewing of your mind. You're changing the way you think 
I'm after your mind this morning. I'm after your thinking. I'm trying to get you to think differently. Here's what I want you to think. I want you to quit thinking that happiness will come when you have your needs met and begin to believe the Gospel, which is your happiness comes from having Jesus meet other people's needs through you. That's when you will be filled with joy. Not when you finally get your love cup filled, but when you finally come to Christ and say, I want you to love my neighbor, love my spouse, love my kids, love even my enemies, love my parents through me. How do we know this is true? How do we know that indifference never brings happiness? How do we know that self-sacrifice brings joy? Because Jesus delighted to love you in that way. He who was rich for your sake became poor. He who was equal with God made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant dying on the cross. He who had infinite glory and wealth and honor and praise gave it all away in order to love His people. Jesus delighted you know this? Jesus delighted to love you with a gospel love. Jesus delighted for the joy that was set before Him. He went to the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. And He gives you this wonderful promise. He says to you, Christian believer, come and follow Me. Reject the passing pleasures of selfishness and delight in a gospel love. And I will give you the same joy. Now, how do we do this? Well, I've given you six steps or or six letters that spell rap bat. So you can easily remember it as if that would help you. (laughs) Who's going to remember rap bat? Yesterday, I couldn't even remember it. I had to look it up what it stood for. How do you get rid of the selfish part and get into the love of Christ? Now, anytime there's six steps, there's always the risk that I've left out a step, or you're going to think, well, if I do these six mechanically, everything will all be better. It doesn't work that way. But you still need to know some steps to help you along the path. So here they are. First, read. R stands for read. Read the commandment in the Bible to love. That's one of the things Pastor Kaiser pointed out in the communion meditation. It is by the Word of God that we are quickened. It is by the Word of God that we are renewed. So, husbands, when you need to love your wife, and you don't feel like it, you read the Bible. You read this. Let us love my wife, for love is of God. Everyone who loves their wife is born of God and knows God. If I do not love my wife, it's because I do not love God, for God is love. You read it. You put yourself in it. It's the Word of God. It changes your mind. changes your heart. Then second, this will kill you. You admit so bad. I cannot love my parents when they will not do for me what is so obvious to everybody in the world they ought to do. Pray. Tell God. God, I cannot do it. Isn't that true? Apart from me, you can do no good thing. You do know that. You do believe that. Admit it. Then third, P, pray. Ask God to look at the same text you're doing and to do for you what will bring you joy, but you cannot do. Lord, let me do this. Give me Your Spirit. Let me abide in Jesus. Love my wife through me. Love my husband through me. Pray for God's grace. Then fourth, believe. 
Don't all the promises of God come through faith? Believe the promise. The Bible says that God will give you His Spirit, that you will be able to love your spouse. So believe what He says. Lord, I believe Your promise. You're going to do something great today. I'm not going to do it perfectly, but today I'm going to love my husband in a way that has never been seen before. Please protect him from a heart attack. Then fifth, act. A is for act. Somewhere along the lines, I hate to tell you this, but you've got to actually do it. <laughs> you, got to, you have to actually be nice to the old man. You have to actually start loving them. Now, you can do it because you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, right? You've prayed, you've asked, you've believed. Do it. Begin to love. Imagine in your head, instead of thinking those thoughts about how much your spouse bugs you when she doesn't wrap the toilet paper around the right way or whatever it is that's bugging you today. Instead, imagine what you would look like. Do a little out-of-body thing. Stand over here and imagine what it's like. To, what, would it be, what would I look like if I were loving my wife? Huh, I ain't doing that. No, no, I will do that, right? And then go and start to do it. Act. And then finally, thank God for the grace given. Thank God for the grace given. We're fortunate here in that we have uh, amongst us, I know they're not perfect. I guess they're not perfect. Um, I hope they're not perfect. But we do have Pastor Kaiser and Mrs. Kaiser. And boy, are they not a great example of people who have chosen by faith to delight themselves in serving others. I don't think I've... I'm pretty sure I've known Pastor Kaiser Mrs. Kaiser for 12 years. I don't think I've ever seen them grumbling about a duty. They are filled with joy that God is loving us through them. Here's another example. Stephen Olford tells of a pastor during the American Revolution. Apparently this is a true story. Everything on my research said it's true. It's a little hard to believe, but the pastor's name was Peter Miller, and he lived 70 miles from Philadelphia. And he was a friend of George Washington. This is before we became a country, so he wasn't president yet. He was General George Washington during the American Revolution. Peter Miller is the pastor. Lives 70 miles. And in Peter Miller's little town, there's a man named Whitman. Whitman is an angry man. <laughs> He's every pastor's nightmare. He, he, he does everything he can. I hope there's no Whitman here in the congregation. He, <laughs> relative of yours, huh? He does everything he can to oppose and humiliate this pastor this guy, Peter Miller. Well, one day, Whitman is arrested for treason. And back then, judgment was a little quicker and more along the lines. They decided to hang him. And he was going to be hung in Philadelphia. And so, Pastor Peter Miller started walking. He walked 70 miles to Philadelphia to meet with his friend, General George Washington and to plead for the life of Whitman, the traitor. So he comes up to General Washington and says, General Washington, I need the life, I need a Whitman released to me. And General Washington said, Peter, we're friends, but I, I can't do that. I can't 
Just because some guy is your friend, I can't release him from the punishment for for being a traitor. And Peter Miller said, my friend, he's not my friend, he's the worst enemy I have in the whole world. And Washington said, what do you mean? You mean you walked 70 miles to save the life of an enemy? Well, that puts matters in a different light, light then. I tell you what, I think I will release him to your care. And that afternoon, Miller and Whitman walked 70 miles back to their little town. But you know what? They walked back as friends. Because God had given that pastor an ability to love someone that he did not want to love. But he humbled himself. He said, Lord, this is good. Will you not do something for me? Will you not allow me to love with a supernatural love that I have not within me? Father God, we are astounded by the love of Jesus Christ. We are astounded by such a gospel love, a self-sacrificial love, a love which denies itself over and again. We are encouraged by the graciousness of the love of Jesus. We are thrilled by the staying power of the love of Jesus. We are controlled by the wonders of the love of Jesus. And Lord, we also know that our sin is dealt a serious blow by the work of the love of Jesus. So I ask, Father, for all of us today that You would fill us with this love of Christ in our hearts, that we might obey this very commandment here, loving one another even as You have loved us. We bless You for the love of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.